From one islander to another, Isle of Wight Radio proudly presents John Hannam Meets. Hi and welcome to another John Hannah Meets Archive. Today I'm going back to 2006 when I went to Weybridge in Surrey to interview a great broadcaster, the one and only Michael Aspel. He was due to come to the Isle of Wight, Ventnor Winter Gardens, with the Antiques Roadshow, so I went really to plug the show. So we're going back to 2006. John Hannam Meets from the Archive. Michael, welcome to John Hannam Meets. Thank you, John. We ought to say we're at the Oatlands Park Hotel, which is uh, in Weybridge. A uh, very historic hotel, I understand. It goes yes. right back. Yes, Henry VIII was uh, around here. He, he put this stretch of water called Broadwater, we're sitting quite close to, um, when he had one of his palaces along here, and they filled it with fish for his friends to enjoy. I love delving back, really. You, you were a bit of a toughie at school, weren't you? Because you, you, you beat the bully up once, didn't you? I was evacuated during the war. It's funny you should <laughs> mention that, because I'm yes. the least violent person you've ever seen in your life. I'm not big enough. But I had, I had a temper, and we were evacuated, and the local kids were... They didn't want us, and they, they made that quite clear. So um, I squared up to this bloke, and I think I won that one. <laughs> so what was Chard like in Somerset, wasn't it? Chard in Somerset, yes, it was a lovely place and uh, a bit harsh to have all these evacuees landed upon it, but um, we were from all over the place and there were some very cruel things happened in the sense of uh, there were a lot of Austrian refugees with us and, and kids from uh, the east end of London were from Chinatown and the Chinese kids got beaten up for being dirty yellow Japs and the Austrian refugees got beaten up for being Nazis. But we all fought back anyway, so it was, it was fair enough. I was reading something on you, and you were a paper boy for a while, and all of a sudden I think you lost your job. But you sort of a, a bit of a business head because you set up your own sort of firm, didn't you? It's interesting that I should have been a, a very physical kid and, and good at business because neither of these things applies any longer. And <laughs> I, I did it. It's, it occurred to me these people still wanted the papers delivered. I charged them... I think a penny or twopence each, which was nothing to them, but when you added up all the customers, I came back from evacuation with 16 pounds, 12 shillings and threepence, all from pennies, and I bought a bike with it. <laughs> so then I continued doing the paper round back in London, but I lost the business acumen. <laughs> I think there was an early ambition, Michael, to become a journalist. Was that sort of in your mind? Yes, I wanted to go to live in Manchester and write for the, uh, for the Manchester Guardian because of the, the, this old writer who used to write about cricket and, and music, and I thought that was a place to be. And um, I have worked for the South Wales Echo, but not as a journalist. I just sold advertising when I was getting into broadcasting. I know you sort of started at a publishing house, I think, in the early days. What did that mean? Well, it sounds grand, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. And it was. It was a grand publishing house. William Collins uh, and St. James's Place in London. I was 16. I was the office boy. I'd just left school having done my school cert. And my parents, uh, we weren't the sort of family who looked for higher education. So they said, uh, time to leave, get a job. So I, I became a job, as I was interested in writing, in a publisher's <laughs> natural connection, <laughs> making the tea. Yes. And uh, then National Service interrupted that. So what was National Service like? For you was it sort of fun 
Well, there was a great deal of fun, in, certainly to do with the, the fellows you met, and yes. you missed them desperately when it was all over. But um, it was, uh, I mean, two years when you're 18, as you may remember, <laughs> is, a, is a, it's a long time, because time is elastic, and the younger you are, the longer things take. And it was a dreadful prospect, but we went to Germany for a year and had a, a pretty lively time there. When the king died, we lined the route of his funeral procession back in London, and so there were quite a few eventful times. Parties, young ladies, and all that sort of stuff? Or? Well, I know we were the virgin soldiers. Ah, right. We, in Germany, you, it was, would be quite easy to have uh, established relationships with a tin of coffee or a pair of nylons. But um, no, that, that, that escaped me, and I came back without still not knowing the ways of the woman. <laughs> I think it was round about 54 when you went to Cardiff, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I'd been out of the army for a year, still not deciding what to do for a living, and um, I just joined a firm who happened to make beds. And they sent me to Cardiff, to this big store there, to ostensibly learn the retail trade so that I could be their top salesman. Well, I went. I wasn't interested in being a salesman. But that was a wonderful move because I met some people down there who were involved in local broadcasting, and that's how I got into it. Quite amazing, isn't it? You were, you were on children's hour, weren't you? Yes, the voice of Captain, was it O. Haggart? Something o. Like Haggerty, my o. Haggerty, very first. Yes, because yes. I could do these, these accents. I had this parrot facility for doing different voices. And, and when I went for the audition, uh, I did various accents. And they called me back as I was leaving and said, can you do this Irish voice? Well, this was in Cardiff, so I got away with it. And <laughs> I was on the air the next week as Captain or Haggerty, this villain of the children's hour, live radio, or wireless, of course, as we Yes, the it. red and light came on and that was it? Yes. Yes. And I remember the producer once we were having all these villains, mostly Germanic types, of course, it being early 50s. And she said to, to us, can any of you do a German accent? And this Welsh actor said, yes, I can do a German voice. I can speak in, in the German language. So she said, right, when I give you the green light, give me a 30 seconds of German. So the light came on and he said, up periscope, down periscope. <laughs> So you threw him out. <laughs> Who was Rocky Mountain then? That was me. I was Rocky yes. Mountain. Yeah, we did Counter Spy, which was a mm. hugely popular children's hour serial play written by a local man in Cardiff. And he was Lieutenant Commander Gregory Vaughan of Naval Intelligence. And I was James Rocky to you Mountain of the FBI, his sidekick, the one who fell down the lift shaft at the end of every episode. It was a very happy time. I've never had more fun. Must have listened to you years ago and not, not realised it was you. Well, quite possibly. I get a lot of very wizened old ladies that are coming up to me at roadshows and things now and saying I used to listen to you as a child. <laughs> so you may have been one of those wizened old ladies. <laughs> yes. I earned £10 a week as in the, the Welsh Drama Repertory Company and I wanted no more out of life. It was double figures, which was huge money in those days. And uh, I was in, an actor, I was a radio actor, because apart from being a journalist, I wanted to be a cartoonist, I, I wanted to be an actor. And here I was, an actor, aged 21, 22, and I had a motorbike, yeah, the world was my oyster. So working in Cardiff was, was lucky for you, because all of a sudden, you, as you say, you got involved with the BBC, and uh, you never really looked back after that, did you? It's, it's strange, nothing... Yeah, nothing deterred me from that moment on, uh, or rather, I say deterred, it makes me sound ambitious and determined. I wasn't, it just came my way. After doing that for a year or so and not wanting to do anything else, uh, the boss of the, of the radio station said they need announcers in the communal dinner jacket back at Lime mm. Grove in London. So off I went to, to test for that. And they accepted me, and, and there I was. There was only one dinner jacket shared by all the announcers. It was huge. 
And I wasn't very tall, so I had this big pin in the back. But that's how it was. That was in 1957. So you came on to sort of link the programmes, I guess, did you? And, uh... Yes, I came, we came on and greeted the audience in a, in a jacket in the afternoon. Then the BBC closed down between sort of five and seven, and then we came back in the dinner suit, the evening programmes, to welcome them to, to the thing. Then did the weather forecast at the end and closed the station down. <laughs> then you became a newsreader, I know, didn't you? Yes, Richard Baker uh, became ill one Christmas, and I was asked to replace him back in 1960. And I went up to Alexandra Palace, where television began. You have this historical, wonderful building. And the great thing about that was it, it was such a cut-off empire, the news, uh, entirely independent of the rest of the BBC. So I went up there overnight to, just to do one job and stayed there for eight years. And again, had a, a great time meeting you know, all the cameramen and reporters coming back from their assignments across the world. And we had a bar. Can you imagine any situation now where the newsreader would say, do the six o'clock news and go off to the bar and glug down and, and until the nine o'clock news. It was so casual. How it's changed over the years, because modern technology with news really makes it so different, doesn't it, really? I don't recognise it at all. I think, well, why, why are they fiddling with those computers? Why don't they just sit there and read off the autocue? <laughs> did things go wrong? I'm sure they did. Things always went wrong. I mean, with the pronunciation unit, they used to send you a list every day of awkward names that were in the programme that day, but usually after the bulletin, so you'd have to sneeze when that name <laughs> came up. There was one African politician called Sir Abu Bakr Tafawa Balewa. There was a rhythm to it. You could walk up and down the dressing room saying that, Abu Bakr Tafawa Balewa. And after a couple of weeks, they said, terribly sorry, it should be Abu Bakr Tafawa Balewa. And then someone shot him, so we never had that problem anymore. I'm Vanilla Fielding. And whenever I can, I listen to John Hannah meets. <laughs> Currently, I'm at the Oatlands Park Hotel near Weybridge uh, with Michael Aspel. I want to talk about Miss Woodard because all us guys envied Michael Aspel because you were there at every competition, weren't you? I was for about 14 of them. Yes. yes, I was, as you say, the most envied man in Britain <laughs> who, who all thought that it was a riot of lust from beginning to end. <laughs> well, it might have been internally, but it wasn't actually because... They were looked after so closely by the uh, organisers of the competition that we never got near these ladies. Is it right, Michael, that um, you got chatted up once or twice by um, contestants, or was that...? Well, we're all, we were all healthy young people. <laughs> and uh, I remember one girl from Sierra Leone was extremely forthright and gave me her room number at the hotel and said, see me there. And uh, I didn't, I couldn't anyway, because uh, one can never get near these ladies. But I did... I have a, a brief friendship with Miss Uruguay one year. She stayed on in London when the contest was over and we saw a little of each other. Lovely. <laughs> mm. So there were perks to that job, really. There certainly were. <laughs> I know one occasion there were 27 million people watching and it was one of your sort of least memorable moments because I think, did a microphone fail or you had a problem, didn't you? Well, again, live television, best thing in the world. Things I, I never worried. I used to long for things to go wrong. Did you? Because it was so kind of formalised and... and rather scary trying to, to do it properly so that when things packed in you could have a bit of a laugh and yes this microphone packed in and, and they gave me another and the original one was sort of swinging between my legs it was a very strange moment <laughs> caused great fun I'm sure yes I mean the you, I always felt and always have felt that if things go wrong it, the, there's nothing that the viewer likes more and that's mm. what you're there to, to please I know you joined uh, Two Way Family Favourites which was sort of an institution wasn't it because every Sunday lunchtime millions tuned in and how did you feel when you joined such a sort of prestigious programme really? 
I, I seem to have spent a lot of my life joining prestigious programmes, and that was certainly one of them. In fact, that's what one of the attractions of going freelance, as I did in 1968 after the news, uh, Family Favourites was offered. And uh, it was daunting. It was very daunting. But uh, again, it was such a, such a nice, warm family, literally family-type programme, that one quickly sort of slipped into it. and managed to have a few laughs at the same time. BBC, they were never sure of me, because uh, I always wanted to have a bit of a laugh. So I think they worried. I, I, I worried them a bit. <laughs> but so you, you, you sort of followed so many famous people, didn't you? Cliff, obviously Cliff Mitchell, Jean Metcalf, and, and well, you could list so many people that had done that show before you, really. Yes. I mean, it went on for me. Ages. You did Capital Radio for ten years, I think, didn't you? Yes, that's something I didn't pick up on from somebody else. Capital Radio, when it came in 1974, with Richard Attenborough as the chairman and all that, the very first commercial radio station in Britain, and uh, in London, of course, and it was just thrilling. They employed me to, to woo the housewives to be the old smoothie. But again, they had forgotten I'd been a radio actor and liked to muck about. <laughs> and we built up really a most enjoyable program to do. And I was there for, for 10 years. And you've met so many top names. And I was lucky enough to do the same. And it was great because, like you, you do your homework. You get to know them quite well before you meet them, in effect. And there's nothing more flattering than people knowing about you. And they responded to that. So you get a lot more out of people than just doing a two-minute sort of uh, stuff you've just got from newspaper headlines. People still remember you for Cracker Jet, of course, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> Another takeover job? Yes. Yes, that was uh, <laughs> Leslie Crowther, who had taken over from Eamon Andrews. Yes. And so it goes. Yes, it was, uh, that was extraordinary, because although I had kidded myself, I was at heart... An entertainer, you know, I was really the sort of just the, the pale and uninteresting one in the, in the background with people like Peter Glaze and the others doing their stuff. <laughs> uh, Peter was a wonderful character. Was Bernie Clifton on when you were there or not, really? He, he came on the show quite often, did bits, but he, he, wasn't, he, he wasn't running it. It was Rod McLennan, this Australian, and Peter Glaze and Gillian Comber. Gillian Comber was a stunning girl who had black hair and dazzling teeth and bright green eyes and she lives not a mile from where we're sitting now and I met her for the first time after many years a couple of weeks ago dazzling white teeth bright green eyes and, and white hair but looking exactly the same I think you did about 10 series of Aspel and Company something like that remarkable wasn't it, it did go a long time yeah. Aspel and Company you know, this kids request program it was very cheap for the BBC to do because they were just asking to see, again, clips of programmes they'd enjoyed on BBC. And that went for years, and I still get people asking about it. And when I'd been doing it for a few series, I was on holiday in Italy, as it happens, and a small boy came up to me and said, Hello, Ask. <laughs> Come dancing, that was something else you did, wasn't it? Yes, I did a few come dancing. In fact, when I'd started doing the Antiques Roadshow, Hugo Morley Fletcher, one of the experts, called at me across the table at the first dinner and went, because <laughs> he is rather aristocratic. And I couldn't understand what he was saying. And what he was saying was sequins, because he associated me with come dancing. And the last time I'd done it was on my 27th birthday. So. But a lot of people watched that, didn't they? It was hugely popular. Yes, and, and now is again through Strictly Come Dancing, which I've been asked to do, but the ignominy will be too severe, I think. Are you a pretty good dancer? Or? I've always thought so. I've always thought I had that sense of rhythm and the Gene Kelly touch, which came unstuck when I did the Eric 
and Ernie show yes. years ago <laughs> when I thought I was better than all the others and started off on the wrong foot. <laughs> Just briefly talk about that because they, that was everyone's ambition, wasn't it? I think to be on the Morecambe and Wise show, really. It was. And in fact, I did a few of them. And you know, the BBC wiped a huge number of tapes because they were huge, cumbersome things. And they got rid of whole series of Eric and Ernie's shows, which was a sacrilege. But I was on one show and just as the guest, the only guest, and we did a, a White Tie and Tails number, which was great fun. But then the, the number you're talking about, you know, there is nothing like a dame, that got, that got millions in the 20s. And that was a most wonderful. Eric wasn't sure about it. He never thought it was going to work. He was persuaded by the director... Ernest Maxim, that it would work. And it was the most colossal success ever. <laughs> yes, People was. believed what they saw. <laughs> I mean, at Richard Baker, I used to play cricket with him and he bowled underarm. I mean, the, the idea of him doing those yes. uh, somersaults was <laughs> fabulous. I've had a few on this show that were actually in it like you were. Oh, right. And they all talk so fondly of it, really. Yes, it was a highlight of all our lives. <laughs> Hi, this is Dennis LaCourier, the voice of Dr. Hook. And you're listening to John Hannah Meets on Isle of Wight Radio because you have such good taste. You've done one or two pantos over the years, haven't you? I have trod the boards. After yeah. all, my ambition as an actor has, has you know, come to fruition once or twice. And I, I did two pantomimes. Uh, and I was doing Capital Radio at the same time and recording a chat show during the same week. So it was a pretty intense period. But I was... I was uh, Baron Hardup in one of them, and in the next one I was King Dither, and I thought, well, you can't go higher than that, so I didn't do any more. <laughs> I've got a funny idea. You may have done Private Lives in Eastbourne. I did Private Lives, and that's how I met my, my wife. And, um, she'd always wanted to do the, the play, being a professional, rather trained actress, and she was lumbered with this sort of uh, amateur. But we did it as a professional production in Eastbourne, and uh, I enjoyed it enormously. I mean, though I was probably embarrassing to her great play though isn't it yes a timeless thing yes you've interviewed so many famous people and uh, i think one of the <laughs> elliot gould gave you a problem once i think didn't he elliot gould i interviewed him on radio well interview is the wrong word i was in the same room as him put it that way and uh, he was at the time when he's even given parky a hard time he was a, a strange person and i just started to speak to him and he didn't do anything it's just his mouth opened and his jaw swung from side to side and eventually a sort of groan emerged and after a while i thought well if he doesn't talk neither shall i and so we just sat there in silence and the, the transmitters preparing to switch off because it doesn't like silence but it was a nasty experience and i i should have told him to buzz off really. <laughs> are there one or two people that you actually sat down with that, that you sort of it was just wonderful to be there and you you perhaps never thought you'd ever sit down and talk to them on a on a one-to-one -one like we are today really oh it happened all the time i mean because capital was so powerful um you get them all pouring in you know gregory peck one week bing crosby and i said Bing Crosby, I said, do you remember when you made that record? And he said, no, I never did. I was going to, but I never did. I said, but here it is. Oh, so I did. <laughs> yeah, actually, there's so many records he made that he couldn't remember them all. I was able to remind him. And uh, they all just came in by the thousand. And, and you feel, when it's gone well, don't you, John, that you, you're going to be mates forever. You think yes. this, this is international yes. superstar and I will keep in touch. <laughs> 
And they drift out of your studio and out of the building, and that's the end of that. <laughs> Except with Elizabeth Taylor, that's another story. <laughs> yes. I still get a few phone calls and letters, which I'm always delighted about, you know, Wonderful. from past recruits or whatever. <laughs> right. This is your life, Michael, which obviously millions got to uh, know you for. Um, I think you were on ITV first, weren't you? It was on Thames Television, yeah. yes. It, and although it was originally a BBC property, because there wasn't anything else at, at the time, um, yes, it switched backwards and forwards, and, but it went for 55 years with about a four-year gap between the, mm. the, the stations. And uh, I thought, like the rest of the world, that the show would die with Eamon Andrews because it was so much his. The, it's the red book that counted, mm. not the person carrying it. So I went on just trying not to sound like Eamon, not saying, this is your life. How do I say it like me? But I opened my mouth and it sounded like me, so we, we did it. Then it switched to BBC, of course. Yes, mm. yes. And... Uh, and then you were... Well, you'd been caught already, hadn't you? You'd been on it, I think. Yes, I was the subject of the show in 1980. It was an exceedingly dull programme, I thought. But, but it was at that time, it was a sort of great honour. You know, television was more important then. That was in 1980 when I was surprised. Um, and it was a, a great thrill. Your past life does whiz before your eyes. And you think, who, who do I know in Australia? And that is indeed how it happened. But uh, in the end, people were saying that... Uh, there aren't any people with lives anymore, which isn't strictly true. I, I stopped doing it because I'd done it for 15 years, started doing the Antiques Roadshow and thought, I can't do them both. Were you ever close to anyone saying no? It's interesting how in, all, in the 15 years that I did the show, um, nobody, nobody actually didn't do it, which is not just the same as them not saying no, if you see them. Yes. If you get that <laughs> Yes, <logic>. I do. <laughs> I mean, the people who said no at first, and I wouldn't dream of persuading them because, you know, some regarded as a, as a dreadful intrusion. But you only do the show if the nearest and dearest says they would like it. If, uh, if they say, they, I know they would rather die, then you never did it. No. So you didn't expect a refusal. But Bill Oddy, for example, was one of the very last I did when he firmly said no. And I knew him anyway, and I wasn't offended. I just thought, well, I'm not surprised. But his family said he... And then on the way back, we're driving back, and Bill rings us in the car and says, I'll do your bleeping show. Uh, the reason was, when he got home, he'd found a message from his daughter saying, if you don't do it, we're going to kill you. So he did it. <laughs> Great memories for you, though. I have a funny idea. You used to love it when you used to dress up or you used to hide and disguise yourself, because you, you got a great kick from that, didn't you? Yes, I did, to be honest. Yes, it was back to the old showbiz actor, inverted commas, days. The only trouble is I have a claustrophobia and they put me in a sooty suit and I was quite terrified I said I can't bear being in here you've got to let me just slit the seam of it so I can get my thumb through to the zip if I panic and want to get out <laughs> John Hannam host of British Radio's longest running non-stop chat show this is your life coming towards the end of an interview with Michael Aspel. So let's talk a wee bit about the Antiques Roadshow, which is another show with an incredible audience, isn't it? It is. We've just come back from Australia, did two there in Sydney and Melbourne, and uh, it was a ticketed affair there, which is unique, but we had to do it that way through our co-sponsors. 25,000 people applied for tickets, and we had 2,500 people at each venue, and it was just extraordinary. It, it, and of all ages, that's the amazing thing. It isn't old codgers who just turn up and shuffle around. There's all kinds of people. Yes, looking forward enormously to coming to, to Ventnor, but uh, we, we actually start, the new series starts uh, on Sunday, the 4th of September, uh, from Litchfield Cathedral. 
And we do so many, I forget them all. You know, every week I go out and think, well, I'd like to live here. Next week I'd like to live here as well. And it's all one nice blur to me. So off we go. And I know the experts like uh, Henry Sandin, Eric Knowles, David Batty coming to the Isle of Wight, aren't they? Yes, the A-team. Yes. It's, that's, that's great. It's always a nice one. When we went to Canada, there were two queues for the show in Toronto, one for the roadshow and the other to kiss Henry Sandin. So it shows how much love these guys are. You sort of came in, in in more recent years. Why do you think the show is such a hit? Well, I used to watch it regularly myself before Hugh Scully went off to do other things. Um, and I, I sort of analysed it and worked it out that it's, it, it's like The Simpsons. It works on so many levels. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a history lesson. It's a detective story. It's, a, it's got elements of game showing in it as well. And uh, it's so wonderful to look at. That's one of the other things, these close-ups, these macro lenses that they have that bring this intricate Victorian jewellery into sharp focus. I think it's a lovely programme. And you never know what's going to turn up, do you? No, that's, that's it. You never know. And as many people are, of course, as disappointed as, as are given thrilling news. I mean, you imagine about 80, 95% of the of the stuff that the experts look at is, you know, they have to point out the dishwasher-proof sign underneath and that sort of thing. <laughs> then the gem appears. <laughs> Just quickly, a few other shows, Blockbusters, Child's Play, Going for a Song. Great variety of shows you've done, haven't you, really? Well, yes, I suppose that's... I can say my problem, but it's also my secret, is that yes. to, to, to do so many things and be a sort of dilettante. And although it, it sounds... Uh, Silly blandness is a very useful quality for, to succeed forever in broadcasting. I was on for years before people remembered having seen me before, by which time I was kind of established. I think people remember you for different things. You know, I came up this morning and talking about Michael Aspel, and the guy said, I used to watch him on Crackerjack, and then someone else you mentioned said, Oh, I watched him on this and that. So, and the news, and the, it's, yeah. it's terrific, isn't it? I tell you what, I'm looking forward to also at Inventor is, is who I shall meet that I knew A, when I was a child, B, when I was in the army see Alexandra Palace or wherever because every week I do <laughs> you like cinema too one of your sort of interests I think yes I'm mad on the movies the, the, it's, it's taking a dive as we speak there's not much good stuff on but I will I always said that I would spend my retirement or whatever for my spare time just in a cinema staring at the dark but the way things are looking I'll be sitting at home staring at the ceiling there don't seem to be many classic movies being made at the moment do there no, the remakes of things, and I don't, I don't understand, and uh, stuff without a, without a soul. Occasionally you get something charming like Sideways, the film about the wine buffs. Not major stuff, but just lovely to look at and satisfying. I want to just ask you a story about a German shepherd dog once that sort of took a fancy to you. I was reading the news in uh, Alexandra Palace in the 60s. We were doing a local news thing called Town and Around, and uh, this dog had just won a prize, and... <laughs> I was, t I was interviewing it yes. and its owner, and it, it, it became very friendly. It didn't just want to lick my nose. It was, you know, eight strong men had to drag it off me. <laughs> Otherwise, I think we'd still be engaged. <laughs> so looking back, remarkable, you went to Cardiff not to go into broadcasting, and uh, I wonder what would have happened if you'd have been so successful in your first business that you never sort of gone into television or radio? I would have become, I suppose, a, a disgruntled um, representative of some company and uh, wishing I'd done something else. 
Michael, it's been a great thrill to meet you, and thanks for being uh, such a perfect guest, really. Oh, John, you're welcome. Thank you. And I think you're coming back on the show in a week or two's time um, to promote the actual day of uh, when the show is being seen on TV from Ventnor, which will be exciting, won't it? Yes, well, so it's not goodbye. <laughs> no, it isn't. Lots of luck in the future, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. It's great. He's got a swell personality. He meets and greets the stars with such amenity. Good enough to make you coming out of the street. John Hanami. That's right. Thank you so much for listening to another John Hanna Meets Archive. Today, we've been back to 2006 when I went to Weybridge to interview the legendary broadcaster Michael Aspel. And after the interview, Michael said, how are you getting back to the station? I said, well, I came up by taxi. No, no, no taxi. I'm going to take you back. So happy memories of a wonderful day and also such a nice man. Please go to my website, johnhannam.com, for news of more interviews, some archive and some new. Bye-bye for now. Sweet man. Oh. Who was he again, dear? John. John. Yes. Yes, John. Just John. Hannum. Was it? Yes. 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 So. yes. What does he do? He talks to people like you and me, dear. Oh, I see. Mm. Yes.